Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, we go to our man in Hollywood, Tim Gray from Variety, to chat about the Irish success at the Golden Globes and what the Banshees' chances are at the Oscars. And he gives us a health check on the state of Hollywood. Kate Blanchett took home a Golden Globe for her new movie, Tar, and we find out if it's any good. Plus, musician and mental health campaigner Brezzy chats about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. The show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all, I hope you're doing well. Now, this week in TV, I was watching this. Before we get to today's work plan, I know some of you have been waiting for your ride home, but you're going to have to wait a while longer. This morning, we received a report of a power failure on the North Kilscour platform. How long, Magnus? Helicopters from our sector are being diverted to evac the crew until the power is restored. This includes the choppers coming for our changeover, so we're sitting tight for a while yet. I said how long? You'll be updated over the tannoy about any changes. Yeah, but I said how long? I get that you all went out here. So do I. But this is the job. It's what we do. Now that is a clip from a new show on Amazon that's certainly been getting lots of publicity or I've seen lots of ads for it all week. So I guess the advertising worked because I watched it. And it's called The Rig. I was really not terribly enthused about watching this. Uh, The premise is, even from the trailer, you'll see all these guys, mostly there is a girl there as well, a woman, uh, Emily Hampshire, who you'll know as Rose from Schitt's Creek. She's one of the few women in the cast, but it's set on a North Sea oil rig, a North Sea oil rig that appears to be possibly wanting to be shut down because the people in charge are talking about trimming the fat and stuff like that. So it's taking place at sea with that looming. But then also there is a situation where this mysterious fog rolls in off the North Sea and weird things start to happen to people. I didn't want to watch this because I just thought it sounded, I don't know, a bit hackneyed and obvious. My wife, God bless her, who watches a lot of this stuff with me, uh, kind of refused to watch it and said, nah, I've seen that stuff before. I'm not doing it. That just seems boring and dull and and obvious. Uh, So I kind of had to watch it in between, you know, various times and things. (laughs) But I was strangely surprised i was i was very entertained by this which i wasn't expecting now i think it may have a lot to do with the cast you heard someone there ian glenn the great scottish actor who was Ser jara in game of thrones he is in charge of the oil rig and he's trying to keep it all together as the sh1t is literally going down he's called magnus quite fitting and he's magnetic in it as he always is in so many things he's a great leader in charge in crisis he's brilliant in it the other great scottish actor martin bonner is in it owen teal who you heard there who likes to stir it up a bit 
who was on this show a couple of years ago. Glorious, beautiful, sonorous voice you heard there. He's in it as well. Martin Bonner, as I say, it's superbly acted. What's also very good about it is this strange setting of an oil rig where you can't leave and what that does to the psychology of the people working there. And it has a pleasingly, if it's not an oxymoron, a pleasingly claustrophobic feel about it. And in its defense, this idea of the supernatural fog, and I won't give too much away about that, seem maybe hackneyed or done before, but it, it actually works the way they pull it off. And ash is falling from this fog that's coming. They're also then attempting to be rescued and there's all these issues about the communications not working and boats coming to rescue them and maybe not coming to rescue them. So there was a kind of feel of like a 70s disaster movie about it at times. And again, that sounds maybe hackneyed, but it wasn't. It, it actually works pretty well. So I was quite surprised by the rig on Amazon. It's all up there. It's six parts. They're about an hour long. I'm halfway through it and I'm enjoying it. So the Amazon or the Amazon, no, that's a river in Brazil. The rig on Amazon is well worth a watch. A good entertaining watch. You would do a lot worse than watching. Now, of course, the big movie and TV event of the week was undoubtedly the Golden Globes. And they were back after last year's strange going on with no network in America carrying them. And of course, this year, to use a cliche, Irish eyes were very much smiling because the Banshee of Inish Aaron did pretty well with Colin Farrell getting a statue and so did Martin McDonough. What does this mean for uh, the big awards being the Oscars in March? Well, there's only one place to go for this. I haven't spoken to him in a while, but we go now live to Hollywood to the Oracle, as I affectionately refer to him as Tim Gray, awards editor with Variety. Tim, how are you? I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm very happy to talk with you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well and all the better for chatting to you. So listen, uh, they were back on TV. They seem to go off without a hitch. I mean, not, not to mix up our award ceremonies. No one was slapping anybody. There was no untoward jokes or anyone got offended. But all in all, was it kind of a tame ceremony? Well, I, I feel like for the Golden Globes, it was kind of a transition ceremony because um, okay. you know, at the beginning, uh, Gerard Carmichael uh, did a monologue and it, it wasn't full of laughs. He was talking about the the, uh, the accusations against the HFPA, the Hollywood Foreign Press, which hands out the Golden Globes. So it was something that kind of needed to be addressed, but it wasn't funny. And I think if if people were wondering about um, about the Golden Globes this year, uh, there was nothing to indicate, hey, this is going to be a fun evening for us. But it was mm -hmm. like they, they kind of needed to get through that. And then once once they did, I felt like the the awards, it was like, uh, like just like old times with award shows, you know, where you could yeah. argue about some of the jokes, you could argue about some of the winners, um, speeches went on too long. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was like a just an old-fashioned, normal award show. Was it kind of shock-free? Were there any winners that surprised you? I mean, some people have mentioned the disappointing uh, showing or lack of showing of Better Call Saul. But I mean, I, what, what did you think in terms of shocks or upsets? Well, I mean, there, there's always surprises. I mean, you know, I listen, I liked Avatar a lot. And, I, you know, I was disappointed it didn't get uh, more attention. Um 
and and Better Call Saul, I was sure was going to win for best drama series. But you know, on the whole, I thought it was it was totally respectable uh, list of winners. There was nobody where you thought, what are they nuts? Uh, you know, and and as you said, uh, Banshees of Sharon is you know that's not a, a guaranteed a crowd pleaser. Uh, but it did very well. Uh, the the uh, Steven Spielberg movie, The Fablemans, won for best drama, but uh, Banshees won for best comedy movie. So you know, it was uh, it was it was a good list, I think. Yeah. Now we're possibly in danger of having our first ever argument because I've told people not to go see Avatar because. I really didn't like it. I compared it to a screensaver, but I like you too much. So maybe let's park that. Okay. Tell me this, right. And we're looking towards the Oscars. Cause obviously we're delighted. Uh, the Banshee of Inisherin is a fantastic movie. I think most people agree with that, but it seems to me, and, but I want you to tell me when it comes to Oscars, it may be a bit of a two way street, certainly in terms of direct or two way fight in terms of director and best movie between the Banshees and the Fablemans, or how do you see it? Well, I, th- I think that's entirely possible. Listen, some people also think uh, that um, uh, Top Gun Maverick could win Best Picture, and I think that's possible. Uh, you know, it, it's possible. You know, the, the the thing that's kind of fun and kind of frustrating about all award shows is we never see the results. So, like mm-hmm. last year when Coda won the Oscar for Best Picture, it's like, did it win by? one vote, which is possible, or did it win by a landslide, which is also possible. So so we'll never know. But I think, you know, I think in the, the nominations uh, for Oscars, uh, I think Banshees will do well. I, I think people really like the movie. Whether it'll win, I don't know. Um, you know, because a lot can happen between now and March 12th. And with Top Gun, it's interesting you say that because despite my severe reservations about Avatar, I love Top Gun Maverick and I actually thought it was better than the original. And, you know, I'm not sure if it's the best movie of the year, but I would certainly love to see it be nominated for Best Picture. And if it won, you know, if I could you know, put my Irish flag down for a second, I wouldn't have any huge problem with that because it was a great film. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, it, it's one of those movies that uh, that people like, you know, and I, I have I have cousins who live about an hour from me and I always use them as a gauge, you know, because uh, of, of certain films that I'll see, you know, I, I really like. But I think, yeah, but are they going to like this movie? Um, and there's not a lot of movies this past year that, that I could recommend to them. But I think mm. Top Gun is one. Everybody seems to like it. And and yeah. that could could actually help it because, you know, the way. The, the Oscar voting is, is they have a weighted system. So it's like you vote for what's number one and blah, 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 and they go through all those. And then sometimes if they need to, they go through number two. I mean, it's really complicated. Um, mm-hmm. But but I, I think I think a lot of people would put they might not put Top Gun as their number one choice, but I could see them putting it as their number two or three choice. And that, that could help it win. So, you know, yeah. it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I know everything that happened at the Golden Globes at the time of talking to you, but I haven't watched the entire show. I've watched a few highlights and I've checked everything, all of which I've done online. So, I mean, no matter how great the upcoming Oscars is or how great any future award show is, the audience figures are in decline. I mean, that's kind of irrefutable, right? 
Yeah, that, that, that is irrefutable. I mean, you know, it's funny because, you know, the, the Oscars were the first award show on, on television and that was 1953. And it was like, I think it was like 80 million viewers. I mean, it's like the vast majority of people who had TV sets watched that show. And it's mm-hmm. it's been up and down over the years. But, you know, compare 80 million to I think I think the people who watched the Oscar show last year was 10 million. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the Golden Globes were not on TV last year. So so there's no comparison there. But I feel like like all award shows, you know, the Grammys, the the um, the uh, Oscars, uh, Golden Globes have all taken a big drop because I think people kind of realize, look, if you want to see Michelle Yeoh's acceptance speech or Eddie Murphy's acceptance speech, you know that you can go on YouTube and see it. You don't have to sit mm-hmm. through a three-hour show. And so yeah. I think that I think that that the all the award shows and the networks that carry them are having to deal with this fact. It's like, how do we measure success? Because, you know, it's just a whole different world than it was 20 years ago. It certainly is. It certainly is. But nowhere is better equipped to deal with the changing nature of the world than Hollywood, possibly. Listen, back to the awards themselves. Uh, Kate Blanchett for Tar, which I've seen and we're going to be reviewing shortly on the show. I mean, her performance was exceptional, I thought. Is she very likely to take home the Oscar, do you think, seeing as she took home the Golden Globe? She she seems very likely. I mean, you know, the, the I'll tell you the truth. That, that was not my favorite movie this past year. Mm-hmm. But but people were so enthused uh, when when it first uh, screened in like September and everybody was predicting, oh, she's going to win the Oscar again. And I thought, well, let's see what happens. Um, but I, I do think it's 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 possible. Now, Michelle Yeoh, um, for everything, everywhere, all at once has never. Yes been nominated before um so i'm kind of pulling for her um not not just because she hasn't won but i thought she was wonderful in that movie um so you know it'll be interesting to see what happens but yeah tar has has gotten a lot of support and so has kate blanchett and i think the um the golden globes win certainly certainly helps uh, her case Yeah. Now, one thing I was slightly surprised about when I went down the list of nominations was I saw a movie a couple of weeks ago that launched in Irish cinemas last weekend, Till, all about this tragic case of the death of Emmett Till back in 1955, Mississippi. And Danielle Deadweiler was immense in it. And, you know, it seems to me that uh, that's a type of movie that is very important at the moment and particularly accusations against the whole Hollywood establishment for diversity. That would be front and center. But she wasn't nominated for a Globe. Do you think she will be for an Oscar? I I kind of think she will be. But, you know, again, I think the fact that she wasn't nominated for a Golden Globe, I think it has more to do with, um, you know, th- there's a flood of really great performances this past year. Um, yeah. And and I think I think a lot of people um, hadn't seen the movie. It opened kind of without uh, a lot of hoopla. Um, but but yeah, she's she's amazing. And, and there's a scene um, in a courtroom. I'm not giving anything away, but uh, but maybe about two thirds of the way through when she's on the witness stand talking about her her murdered son. It's like I mean, it's riveting. It's 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 just yeah. an amazing piece of acting there. So I kind of think anybody who sees that would vote for her. But, you know, I don't know if enough people have seen the movie. And tell me this, I'm next Wednesday night finally getting around to The Fablemans. Have you seen it? Yes. 
Yes. And Oscar and Hollywood in general love movies about movies and how important they are. So is it any good and, and are Oscar going to fall all over it? Well, I, th- I think it'll do very well on the Oscars. It, it, you know, it won a Golden Globe for Best Drama fo- uh, Picture and Steven Spielberg won for Best Director. And I think that could happen again at the Oscars. Mm-hmm. I mean, I will tell you, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, I'll try to lower your expectations because it's not going to change your <laughs> life. It's not, okay. you know, with Steven Spielberg, you know, with with E.T. With e. or Indiana Jones or, or that, he, he kind of, like revolutionize the the way you you saw movies, and this is yeah. not necessarily going to revolutionize it, but it's it's there's a very strong love of movies, and it's also very much about family, and I think those are two mm-hmm. things that appeal to Oscar voters. You know, again, it's yeah. not going to change your life, but it's it's really good, and I think if that wins, twenty years from now, people will be okay with that. I don't th- I don't know that anybody's going to be questioning that decision. Yeah. Okay. And listen, finally, because, you know, it's award season, so it's your busy season, as Tony Soprano used to say about the betting season. So I do want to let you go. But, you know, I I remember talking to you about three years ago. And I remember you saying someone in the business said to you, this place is like the Wild West at the moment because of streaming and all that. And that was before the pandemic hit. Mm, And now here we are post-pandemic, streaming still a go-go and all. Is Hollywood still in its same old state of chaos that it always seems to be in from where you're sitting? I know that's a big question, but, but how are things in January 2023? Well, I, th- I think I think for Hollywood specifically in the world in general, it's constant chaos because, yeah. you know, things change. And it, with the entertainment industry, you know, people think that the people in Hollywood are very out of touch living in an ivory tower, but they have to stay in touch with the audience because that's how they make their money. And so I think I think between. Um, you know, between streaming and, you know, do you release a film? Um, in theaters, or do you release it simultaneously with streaming? How long do you wait? Uh, the whole business model that was in place for like 80, 90 years in Hollywood is is turned upside down. So everybody's trying to deal with that and figure out how do we how do we deal with this? How do we how do we make money and how do we get people to see our product? Because it's not you know I mean when movies started it was the popular form. People people would go to movies like two three times a week, uh, and then television came in and everybody said no it's the end of movies. And then uh, video recorders came in and they thought that's the end of movies. And, and you know movies always survive. But but things change. People see them with different frequency and they, and they go to movies in a different way. I mean, when I was growing up, we just go to the movies on Saturday. It didn't matter what was playing. It's like we just yeah. want to see, you know, what whatever was at the theater. Um, and I don't think people do that anymore. So, but you know, Hollywood will survive because they have to, but it's, it's, it's a huge state of, uh, of transition for everybody. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hollywood will stay in a state of chaos and you will remain a constant there. Hopefully, hopefully, and continue to talk to us as the year goes on. Tim Gray, awards editor at Variety. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, always happy to talk with you. Thanks. 
Tim Gray there talking to me about, well, Hollywood and, of course, the Golden Globes and the chances of the Irish to bring home some statues in the Oscars in March and the uh, nominations for what's actually being nominated in the Oscars is out on the 24th of January. I like this time of year in terms of movies because there's a lot of stuff, decent movies to see at the moment. And talking of decent movies, after the break, we'll be reviewing Tar, for which Kate Blanchett won her Golden Globe. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now I mentioned before the break how we would be reviewing Tar. That's T, I think it's almost like an Irish father, but it's not. A or mm. Kate Blanchett, which we've heard all about because she won a Golden Globe this week for her performance as a, let's call her mercurial uh, uh, Philharmonic, the Berlin Philharmonic conductor. And it's an intriguing movie, I have to say. And I'm delighted now to be joined by Aoife Barry of the Journal and, of course, the Get Around to It podcast, who has seen it. Aoife, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm very well. I kind of butchered what it's about. I mentioned Kate Blanchett and an orchestra. Will you tell our listeners in a more articulate way what's going on <laughs> in Tar? Yeah, so Tar is the surname of the character that Kate Blanchett is. So she's Lydia Tar. She's a conductor, a maestra or a maestro, depending on, on who you are and what you want to call her, at the top of her game. Um, she's super famous. She's married to a member of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, she's the first female conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, the pair of them have a daughter together. She's based between Berlin and America. She says she's a protege of Leonard Bernstein. She basically is somebody who is kind of in that 1% in the cultural world or in the artistic world. Um, and we follow her across three weeks where she's preparing for two really big things. One of them is the publishing of a book, uh, wonderfully called Tar on Tar. I just love the title. <laughs> yes. um, and uh, preparing for a recording of Mahler's Fifth. And so she's preparing for these massive big things. She's trying to work with people to get them all done. But in the background, her personal life is starting to kind of, you know, unravel in a little in a little way or in a big way, should I say, because a former protege of hers and their relationship kind of comes into the plot. I won't really say what happened there, but things start to be unveiled there that you know make her unravel a bit and then in the meantime these strange kind of moments happen to her too where she's almost like haunted throughout the film by this mystery noise you know she's very um acutely aware of sound in her house and she keeps mm -hmm. having waking up in the middle of the night so while everything's going great to an extent in her career things start going badly in her life and it, it all coalesces really to to come to a really interesting climax yeah. Now, just to clarify, this is in no way a biopic. Like, this is an entirely no. fictional character. Now, there have been some suggestions that it bears similarities to certain people, but... The, a character called Tar does not exist anywhere in the world that we know of. No, exactly. I mean, Todd Field created this character especially for Todd Field, the director, created the character especially for Kate Blanchett. Like she was in his mind the whole time. And he is somebody who studied music himself as well as being an actor and a filmmaker. And so a lot of that knowledge obviously comes into creating this sort of character. But female conductors are, there's a tiny percentage of them. It's terrible, really. There's only mm. about eight, eight of them in the world's top 100 conductors. And I remember covering before for her there's different programs in Ireland to encourage more women to get into conducting as well which is great so he did decide to create this this individual but the book is so sorry not the book the film is so specific that all the details in it are hyper specific to the point where people have come out of tar and googled her and assumed yeah. that she was a real person I can totally see why 
Now, I've seen this too. I'm sensing you enjoyed this. You know, I really loved this. I went into it thinking that it was something different to what it ended up being. So because I'd read, you know, different pieces about it because it had already been out in the US, um, I assumed it was a bit more of like a cancel culture style film, you know, and that it was really going to be like didactic about what it had to say. And it was really based on a theme. But actually, it's really based on the character. It's, it's a real exploration of this person, Lydia Tarr, and it tries to kind of, unravel who she is but it refuses to give you concrete answers at the same time so i really mm -hmm. liked how it doesn't give you these black or white answers to, to anything and how it keeps piling on these mysteries while it's also unraveling who she is it does these two opposite things at the same time and then it's also so beautiful looking like all the attention that's paid to you know the apartment that she lives in with her wife her second apartment that she lives in, in berlin you know her clothing where she goes to get her suits made all this hyper specific detail really made me feel so absorbed in what was going on mm -hmm. um, and i just thought Kate, Kate blanchett as well i mean she was just so stunning in this role because she's just magnetic as this person who is very you know troubling but also charismatic um mm -hmm. and nina haas who plays her wife as well sharon is great like all these amazing facial expressions that happen so i find myself just so absorbed in this film and i think that's the key to it i feel like if you don't feel absorbed in everything that's going on in that rarefied world that Lydia Tarr lives in, you might not maybe get the full experience of it. And obviously not everybody is going to be um, totally attracted to that sort of film either. Mm. Yeah, well, that's very interesting what you say. And I kind of agree with everything you were saying. Like the narrative is fascinating because you're not really sure. I had the same feeling before I went into it that it was going to be this didactic thing and it wasn't at all and the narrative you know it, it's one of those movies that doesn't really reveal itself till the very end and you've thought about it mm. afterwards so I, I i absolutely get that kate blanchett was stupendous uh, yeah. she really was and she's a great actress anyway but this is a high watermark and that's saying something she was brilliant in it the only thing is and you know we can argue the toss but i just found i didn't care that much there was a slight feeling of incidentality to it maybe because it was a fictionalized life or something maybe that's the mm. tabloid journal in me or something i don't know <laughs> but i did find the story kind of incidental even though obviously everything that happens to her in it and a lot happens is incredibly important here i'm not sure i cared as much as i thought i might like i understand that point of view because i feel like if feel like with this sort of film you do have to surrender yourself to the idea that Todd Field is not going to give you a solid answer to anything so mm -hmm. there are different threads going on in this like the haunting one that I mentioned earlier where you don't really and I don't think it's a spoiler to necessarily say you don't really figure out exactly what's happening mm -hmm. with that sense of her being haunted that it's yeah. just hovering there in the film and also he doesn't give you you know through the the dialogue between the characters um on the and the exposition he doesn't give you a lot of information on the kind of bad things quote unquote that Lydia Tarr did so if you're looking for like juicy interesting bits you kind of have to piece everything together and I can see why yeah. that might be frustrating if you want something more than what's there I think yeah. like I think as well the now I, I still loved it um, but I feel like the ending as well is probably something that some people might feel a little bit like why did they end the film that way because it doesn't really end in a climactic way I, I would, I, it's how I would describe it anyway. And I was maybe questioning what exactly did happen there. But I feel like they also wanted to be the sort of film that you come out of it and you have these discussions about what did happen and what did uh -huh. you do, you know. 
so th- that was enjoyable for me too, teasing apart what maybe I, I expected did or didn't happen in it. Well, funny you say that because I actually thought the ending was brilliant. There you I go. Loved, <laughs> I loved, no, I did. I loved the way it ended and yeah. kind of what it was saying. And I was watching it with someone and I turned to them afterwards and said, is that what happened? Which I think is always great. Like mm. when you have to check, sense check something with someone. Yeah. Okay. So you've taken on board what I've said, but you still think it's amazing. So that's, that's fair enough. So listen, <laughs> just on Todd Field, uh, he's brilliant, but my understanding is it's only his third movie in 15, if not 20 years. Yeah, I think it's 16 years. So he had the film In the Bedroom from yes. 2001, which is gorgeous and really sad. And, yeah. and, and like, it's kind of film where it shifts kind of a third of the way in, it turns into a different film almost yeah. in, a, in a gentle a beautiful way. film. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And Little Children, which I remember coming out, but actually haven't haven't seen, uh, which stars Kate Winslet. And the two of those got Oscar nominations. And mm. in between Little Children and this film, he actually made a load of different projects that never fully got off the ground. So he was trying to adapt like a load of no- novels, like a Jonathan Franzen novel was supposed to be turned into a series. Um, and he also was trying to adopt Blood Meridian as well, the Cormac McCarthy novel, which oh, wow. is so gory that I had to uh, finish reading it pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> so I can imagine what it would be like on screen. Um, so he's he's been trying to do all these things and they didn't quite work out. So it's actually kind of amazing that he finally got something that also explodes his already amazing talent onto another level. Yeah, well, as I always say, and as people always say, it's a miracle any movie gets made. Yeah. Listen, I hate to put you on the spot because I don't think I told you I was going to do this, but if you <laughs> had to give it stars, what would you give Tar? You know, I go to, like I go to give it five stars because it just and, and I know not every film deserves five stars. And sometimes when you're in the afterglow of watching a film that you thought was amazing, you give it the, the most stars it should get, and then you turn around afterwards and think actually maybe that was like a four point five or a three. But I really just loved this so much. I think it's one of the biggest most absorbing films that I've seen in a while and I think that's why it's up there mm. for me but I think I think if I was to be less of a, a less enthusiastic it might be better to 4.5 if I was being a little <laughs> bit more kind of 40 putting the critic the critic hat on but the personal element of it pushed it to the five for me but wow, I'm not that okay. generous in every film I, I will definitely say yeah, no, well, you're still basking in the afterglow, so yeah. that's fair enough. We'll check yeah. in in a year's time. Maybe. Look, I really enjoyed it, and I thought Kate uh, Blanchett was incredible. So I'm going to give it three and a half, because wow. like you, I watch a lot of movies, and this certainly woke me from my slumber, I have to say. Yeah. Didn't like it as much as you, but hey, it's a democracy. That's it. Partly. That's so it. that is a whopping five stars for Tar from Aoife Barry, three and a half from me, and Tar is in cinemas this Friday, the, uh, what are my dates? The 13th okay. of January, and it's definitely worth seeing in the cinema. Aoife Barry, thanks a million. Thank you. Time is the thing. Uh-huh. Time is, is the essential piece of uh, interpretation. You cannot start without me. See, I start the clock. Now, my left hand, it shapes, but my right hand, the second hand, marks time and moves it forward. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops, which means that time stops. Now, the illusion is that like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right, time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. A clip there from Tar, which is in cinemas from this Friday, the 13th of January. And that was Aoife Barry there of the journal and also the Get Around to It podcast, giving her five stars for Tar. Up next, Brezzy on his favourite movie. 
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. This week I'm talking to Niall Breslin, a.k.a. Brezzy, frontman with the Blizzard and a lot more besides, including podcaster, children's author and mental health campaigner. Hello, Brezzy. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Very good. Listen, you told me what your favourite movie was. It was very surprising. This slot is always, you never know what people are going to choose. And in a month of Sundays, I don't know why, but I never would have thought that was your favourite film. So will you tell our listeners what it is and why? Yeah, I suppose it's my favourite film because it's the impact it creates. You know, obviously there's massive films that top five films you always see like Godfather and, you know, Citizen Kane and stuff like that. But it's the impact it generates when you watch something, I think, is, for me, is probably the most important part. And when I watched In the Name of the Father for the first time, I just remember just being completely and utterly blown away by so much of it for, for, for many different reasons. I mean, I had a, f- a bit of a grasp of our history, I suppose, and certain elements of our history. And What, what age were you? Sorry to interrupt. What age were you when you first saw it? I was... F- I think we're 14 or 15. Okay. It was 93, I think it came out. I was, I didn't obviously see it in the cinema, but I was, uh, I remember watching it at home. My dad had, um, my dad got it out, I think, or something. And I watched it and I just, two things struck me. Obviously it was a story and it, it brought me to a position where I kept asking my dad about what happened. And my dad was in the Irish army. So he, you know, he, he's fairly up to, up to scratch and on, and he was quite open about it. And uh-huh. I was always kind of interested in, in Irish history and the troubles and stuff like that. And this kind of opened a new door for me. But I, the other thing that jumped out was the acting, like Daniel Day-Lewis in that role. It was the first time, I suppose, I mean, I hadn't been a seasoned film watcher up to 14, 15 years of age, but it's the first time watching a film going like, this is, you, 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 it, you're just completely and utterly lost in this person yeah. and his, and you, and you're taken by the character, you go with the character and it's because of his ability to act like that. And I don't know if anyone else could have pulled it off the way he did, but I just remember my dad kind of, I came out with like a notebook of questions. And I mean, obviously there's, the film was slightly adapted where there's probably certain elements of it that were, were uh, adapted for film. I know there was a bit of it on the court scenes and stuff like that, but as a piece of work, and and it was also just incredibly engaging and entertaining, but also giving you that deep historical kind of slap between the eyes. Yeah, and for pe- and by the way, when I said I was surprised, it's just you never know what people are going to choose. I completely agree with you. It is a remarkable film. But just just remind people briefly, younger listeners who might not have seen it, it's about the Guildford pub bombings and the wrong people who went to jail for it. And then Jerry Conlon spending quality time and hard time literally and figuratively with his dad Giuseppe in prison yeah I think that was ultimately Jim Sheridan said that was the big obviously the big story was the Guildford pub bombings were mm-hmm. you know four off-duty British soldiers and, and a civilian were killed and but like if Jim Sheridan talks about the relationship between Giuseppe and you know Jerry and it was that kind of carried the film really because yeah. the dad was this pacifist who you know, growing up in Belfast was trying to protect the children from what was going on. And and then when they got into the, you know, into the kind of the element when he goes, I'm going to shoot your dad and that yeah. reaction. Yeah. And um, I remember just being immensely, immensely emotive, like, yeah. like nearly crying at that moment where, he's, where he just, at that point, like Jerry obviously realized what he has just got his dad into and yeah. in the idea that his he was also completely innocent and all of that added layer of emotion and, and carnage and chaos that was going on. And then, you know, the, 
the way that they were treated by the, you know, it was just no matter what they said, it was just twisted and turned. Mm-hmm. And, and then the court scenes, obviously, that moment, and I'm not giving away, obviously, for those who haven't watched the film, but like the court scenes and the end yeah. of the film, it's just spine tingling. I mean, all of the performances in it, I mean, like the Emma Thompson was amazing in it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Pete Postlewaite was in, obviously just the whole casting, everything about it. And a lot of it was shot in Dublin, actually. Mm-hmm. but yeah it was just the impact I had and then that kind of led me on this you know kind of real interest and at the time it was no Google or anything I couldn't just go off and yeah. Google all this stuff and I, I started getting really curious I had family that lived in Tyrone and Oma my dad was from Donegal I, my mum was Scottish and I was like asking them all these questions about elements of the troubles that we knew nothing about really mm-hmm. like you know I was born in 1980 and obviously the troubles were were, were huge at the time but I was too young to actually probably understand anything but then the kind of nuance to it the film I think was just and and the soundtrack the, that especially that Sinead O'Connor yes. song written by Bono like that was a haunting like you couldn't have picked a more perfect song for and I always love I love a brilliant soundtrack I love a brilliant yeah. song that represents the film and mm-hmm. that particular song was Belter yeah you made you made me a tea for your heart isn't that it yeah, he made the, yeah. it was written by Bono. I think Gavin Friday and Bono wrote it, but okay, Sinead O'Connor okay. obviously sang it and like he couldn't have picked a a better kind of vocalist. It was just, yeah. And I think when you watch the film and anyone who hasn't watched the film, it's a hard watch. Like mm-hmm. it is a hard watch and there's elements of it where you just, you feel completely, you, you see the helplessness of it all. Yeah. The helplessness of, the, of, of Giuseppe trying to go and save him and, and the fact that there was an entire state that turned on them and the media and, I often think to myself, like even nowadays, the difference, you know, back then, the whole kind of turning of, you know, we talk about kind of culture, cancelling people and stuff like that with social media. But this was the state, the actual state and the media that did it because they needed a scapegoat. Unfortunately, so there were so many elements to it. And I think above everything, it was was the acting that I think, I, I wonder if anyone else played that role would have had the same impact. It seems unimaginable that it wouldn't be Daniel Day-Lewis or Pete Postlewaite. Let me, one thing that I love about it, and I'm curious what you think, is that the father and son relationship, you know, I don't want to give any kind of spoiler either, but they, they, they get on better in prison eventually and, and there's some kind of rapprochement maybe. But at the same time, there isn't a, I don't know, an arms around you, I love you, daddy, everything is forgiven kind of. Like the relationship seems very real between the two of them. I think it's a real symbol of the, I mean, obviously it's a sweeping general statement, but the Irish relationship with the father, the son-father relationship, which is often kind of masked in avoidance and inability to actually say what's in your heart. And and so many people I know, and including myself, you have those moments where you you get those fears of like, what if I don't get to say this to my father? Like, what, the, yeah. what if I don't ever get to say these things? My dad has said was in the military and he was overseas most of my life. And funny, as I got older, and only then did my relationship change with my dad where I became incredibly open with him. Mm. And sometimes it takes something to happen. And, and yeah. I suppose in the name of the father, it was that story where his father had this unbelievable love for him, but kind of knew he was a bit of a rogue and he was, he was liable to get in trouble. And it was just in the prison. And then the guilt, that was the mm. big thing. You know, that's the one thing I honest to God think is one of the most shadowing parts of Irish culture, shame and guilt It kind of mm-hmm. suffocates people. And you could see it in, in Giuseppe, all the guilt. And then mm-hmm. when he was let out of jail and, you know, I know I, I've heard him speak about it many times. 
that guilt and shame for doing nothing wrong, really, which is just such an Irish yeah, thing. Like, I know, I, I know. I, I'm shameful because of the, like, I was put in jail for a crime I didn't commit and my dad, you know, passed away. But I do think that Irish father-son relationship is, you could write, you could write like a thesis on it. Well, look, that film clearly runs deep with you and it undoubtedly sounds like it is your favourite movie. So, so thank you for sharing that. And I would urge people to watch it if they haven't seen it, because it's not just one of the greatest Irish movies ever made. It's just, it's just a great, great film. Let me ask you something, I suppose, kind of related to what we're talking about. I met you for the very first time probably 15 years ago when I was a researcher on the Tom Dunn show uh, in the mornings and you were in with the blizzards and you were laughing and playing music with the guys and all. And here we are 15 years later. And as well as a musician, you're probably best known as a, a mental health campaigner and all the work you've done in that area with your podcast and mindful books for mindfulness books for children and stuff like that. Does it strike you as odd when you look back now from that vantage point? What's, become of your life or like were the seeds of that there that day do you think that you were playing a guitar in a studio and news talk oh yeah the seeds were always there from like my teenage years i kind of had that relationship with my mental health quite silently throughout the 90s and you know talking about when name of the father came out one of the biggest impacts of my life was when kirk Cobain died and I was obsessed with Kirk Cobain. He's the reason I picked up a guitar and then asking the Christian brother what happened the day he died and the Christian brother screaming in my face and call him a coward. You know, that was my kind of wow. mental health education. And at the time I was just kind of in a ball of, I don't know what was going on. And it kind of drove me far deeper into myself. And I kind of carried that for the rest of my life until I kind of got to a point where I, I hit that you know, the kind of the cliche rock bottom where you have two yeah. choices, you stay, you stay there, you find a way out. And yeah, that was a 15 year journey, including that journey was music. I was a professional athlete. I was, yeah. I worked in a bank for 10 minutes. I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was back, back, went back to college. I went to study again. So I always believed that the only, you know, the next thing will be the thing that makes it better. And it doesn't work like that. And unfortunately, even with music, I suppose, you know, it, back to this word avoidance, I just spent 15 years avoiding, 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 and ultimately led to a, a pretty horrific panic attack for a live show of a, the, the voice at the time. And that's, yeah. that was the catalyst that changed my life and kind of led me on this completely different path and ultimately led me to uh, co-founding my charity, Lust for Life, which has now reached 50,000 primary school students. You know, we, we will be in every school in Ireland by the end of next year. That's the goal is like, you can't be a problem admiration society with this stuff. You've got to figure out what can you bring to the table. So that's what I did. And I went back to college and now I'm currently, you know, proposing my PhD. I'm, I've developed my kind of area of really understanding and, and, and want to learn, learn more because I want to bring that, I suppose, bring that education and, and that knowledge to people to, mm -hmm. to say, listen, this is what we can do. And I, that's what drives me. And uh, no matter what I've done in my life, creativity has been at the core of it whatever it is mm -hmm. music or, or or tv or writing and creativity doesn't live and die by music and art it, it, you can be a creative thinking how do you solve problems mm -hmm. like you look at issues and you you go you bring a creative mind to figure out to solve them you think outside the box that's how i like to think so yeah i'm i'm back you know just finishing my proposal for my phd and my next step is to is to you know, hopefully be able to help people in a far deeper way. 
And your master's was in creative mindfulness. Is that right? Or it was a mindfulness based intervention. So okay. um, basically, yeah, just the, the kind of and your PhD will be a continuation of that. It is uh, the aim is actually to look at our our historical relationships with treatment and how we used to treat and continue to treat in certain ways, uh, emotional well-being and mental health and how utterly dysfunctional it was. So we're looking yeah. at the Irish kind of psychiatric systems throughout the 1900s and to up to now, really. And the idea is that early intervention, I think, is is one of the core core areas that we need to be focusing on, which is what we are doing with Lust for Life. So I'm kind of doing a research piece on the programs that we do just to see how how much efficacy is there. And, and so hopefully we can roll them into education curriculum. And that's yeah. the ultimate goal is, is curriculum-based mental health uh, education and we're not there yet i think we're a fair bit from there so i'm trying to figure out you know what's the best what's the best thing i can do i think that's it well listen may the road rise to you in that endeavor and you know i, I know you're not doing it for that but hopefully the next time we talk you'll be on the road to being dr niall breslin uh his favorite movie is in the name of the father brezzy thanks a million my pleasure cheers why do you always follow me when i do something wrong why can't you follow me when i do something right what are you talking about? Huh? What am I talking about? I'm talking about the medal. What medal? I'm talking about the only f***ing medal that was ever in our house. The medal I won at football. And you was on the sidelines shouting instructions. And you could only see what I was doing wrong. I could never do anything good enough for you. And after the game, you came up to me and you said, you said, Jerry, did you foul the ball? And I walked away from you. Do you remember now? I walked away from you into the dressing room. You followed me in there. And he said again, Jerry, did you fill the ball? And all the other fathers were in there. They were laughing at you, calling you poor Giuseppe. Because I did fill the ball. What did it matter? We won for once in our lives. We won. You ruined that medal for me. I took it at the palm. And they laughed at me. They wouldn't even give me 50 pence for it. This is shock. And that's when I started to rob. The proof that I was no good. Delayed shock. Delayed shock. Never mind delayed shock. I've been like this since I was seven. A clip there from In the Name of the Father. What a film that is. What performances are in that film. If you haven't seen us, do it now. Do it now, people. And you heard me talking to Brezzy there about his favourite movie and also his career as a mental health campaigner and advocate and my thanks to Brezzy for taking the time that's it for this week my thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk you can get in touch with me at any stage during the week John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com let's do it all all again next week. Thanks for listening and have a safe week ahead.